From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Saudi Arabia getting into a major diplomatic spat with Canada. And what's the latest from the war on Yemen? Why should we be paying attention to it? Welcome to Foreign Edition. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal editorial board broadcasting to you from News Corporation headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. And I am incredibly pleased and honored to welcome very special guest today, Karen Elliott House, one of the world's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia and U.S.-Saudi relations. She's the author of a book on Saudi Arabia, a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and the former publisher of Yes, This Newspaper. Karen, welcome to Foreign Edition. Thank you, Mary. So let's start with this Saudi-Canada dispute uh, it's it's really quite a remarkable break between the two countries. Saudi Arabia expelling Canada's ambassador, recalling its envoy, taking other measures, all because Canada's foreign minister called for the release of a human rights activist. Uh, Karen, why this extraordinary response? I think they are trying to signal to the United States and others to keep your mouth shut about human rights. Um, I was there in July. They are quietly now. There are no more big um, Ritz-Carlton kind of arrests, but they are quietly continuing to pick up people quietly continuing to freeze bank accounts of uh, different individuals and <clears throat> they don't they don't want um, criticism of that because i think the crown prince does understand that in the us if human rights were to become a really big issue with saudi arabia which it hasn't under trump um it would not be good for his desires to attract uh, foreign investment and so he you know he wants to be able to do what he wants to do without criticism Karen Something I think Trump would enjoy, but yeah. doesn't have the, le- le- the luxury <laughs> right. of. Look, I, I think that commentators on Saudi Arabia often paint the kingdom in very black and white terms, and I, it, it's it's not often as clear cut as that. Of course, uh, the United States, other liberal democracies, would love for Saudi Arabia to become much freer, far more liberal. Um, and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince to whom you referred, seems to be inching the kingdom in that direction. But he also faces a kind of tough balancing act, doesn't he, with the ruling clerics uh, that his family has shared power with, if you'll excuse the dangling preposition. Mm-hmm. I think, and I obviously could be wrong, but he has so... I think for the time being, at least, so eliminated any other centers of power. I mean, he banned the religious uh, police from arresting people and for um, violating the cultural and traditional um, 
and Wahhabi view of, you know, men and women shouldn't mix, etc. I mean, they eliminated their ability to harass women, arrest people more than two years ago, and there was hardly a peep. Mm. And he has, you know, allowed women to drive. He's allowed um, cinemas, which were considered <clears throat> sinful by the religious. I went to the movies in July just to <laughs> see. And uh, the the afternoon movie was the only one I could get into, Incredibles 2, because <laughs> the 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. showings were sold out. Um of a new movie, I've forgotten the name of it, but, uh, you know, one of these kind of blood and guts terror movies. Um, and, you know, there are men and women sitting there entering the theater, just like here, with big tubs of popcorn and, mm. you know, nachos and extra large um, drinks. I mean, it, you know, it's mind-boggling to see, and they're all sitting there laughing and, you know, talking, and I and I was the only um, non-Saudi in the theater. So, Karen, the theater, it, it, the theater seats 500 people. There were only wow. about 200 there that afternoon. But, you know, all of these things are completely um, new um, in Saudi Arabia, so... I mean, the the prince is very big on giving people all of the um, modern things, uh, women driving, cinema, but there is no political um, reform. I mean, power is held by him, and I, I'm, I'm sure he has to pay some attention to the religious, but he has fundamentally wiped out opponents in the royal family. There are a lot of people unhappy with him, but they don't have power. And I think he has curbed the religious. Um, you can never be sure mm. if something goes wrong that would allow people to rally the religious or the group that can, um, you know, can organize the, the country. But <clears throat> they've always been able to do that through mosques. And now there is a new... <laughs> There's a new app in Saudi Arabia that uh, will monitor the sermons in mosques and allow people to rate their preacher. It, um, you know, it sounds like he's the best chance that Saudi Arabia has had in many generations then um, for liberalization and more easing, at least of some of the social constraints on Saudis, particularly women, and that's a that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. However, Karen, um, some of the economic reforms that he's attempting seem to be backsliding a bit. I'd note the Aramco IPO, that's the state-owned energy company, they were going to do an initial public offering. That now seems to be off the table. You know, again, I go back to this tightrope. He's young, he's brash, he's a reformer. He's not entirely a liberal. There are still human rights abuses, et cetera, but he seems to be moving the country in the right direction. But what happens if that economic reform stalls? Well, the, the as you say, the Aramco IPO has just kind of slipped off the table because I think they did not want to make the disclosures necessary to do the IPO. 
and the reason for doing the IPO was to get $100 billion by selling 5% of what the Prince valued Aramco at $2 trillion, wow. um, to put into their public investment funds so he could invest in things abroad to create earnings to replace the oil revenues. So they have now found another way to do that. They are going to have Aramco buy from the public investment fund um, for $70 billion a, a, a large share in another Saudi company, Saudi Arabian Basic Industries Corporation, which is a petrochemicals company. So they will get $70 billion to invest and you know the today there is news that they are investing in tesla mm. i don't know if it's true or not but that they're investing somewhere between 1.7 and 3 billion dollars um for 3 to 5% of tesla so he is he has found another way to get money to invest their bigger economic issue is um how do they create jobs in the country because foreign direct investment has declined, actually, and um, the economy last year shrunk. This year, it is growing um, some um, around an expected under 2%, Mm. which would be big compared to shrinking last year. But they have got to find a way to get the economy growing and creating jobs because the government can no longer hire all the young Saudis. Um, so uh, they have got a, a a youth bulge that they have to employ or, or else these young people who are his supporters are going to become unhappy over the next five years. Well, and and it brings us back to this U.S., uh, rather, sorry, Canadian-Saudi diplomatic rupture, um, not because it necessarily represents a massive economic threat immediately to Saudi Arabia. I think the the exports, Canadian exports to Saudi, uh, probably minuscule, um, single digits, if that. Um, So it's not the volume, it's, it's the message that it sends to other foreign investors and that has to be a concern, particularly when the the crown prince is looking for that FDI. Yeah, that's why I find I think he's very smart, uh, the crown prince. And as you say, he does clearly want to um, free up the uh, remove the social constraints and uh, and. Uh, modernize the economy, get it off a dependence on oil. Um, But it it seems short-sighted when you, you know, arrest all your royal relatives and a lot of businessmen and put them in the Ritz. That concerns potential foreign investors. You mean hanging Um, upside down from their toes in the Ritz, just to be clear. Yeah, and, (laughs) uh, you know, and... And when you have a big spat with Canada, Canada per se is not an important partner for them. So I don't think the consequences to either Canada or Saudi Arabia are very 
large, which is why they can, the Saudis can afford to do it. Um, they can't afford that kind of spat with the U.S. Um, but it just seems like it sends the wrong signals to worldwide investors. So I have trouble figuring out, because I don't see him as vulnerable internally now, why he does things that seem to be against his big vision 2030 um, reforms. It doesn't strengthen him. It doesn't help. And I can understand taking these steps if you were vulnerable internally. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's more vulnerable internally than I think, but I don't. I don't see any evidence. So all I can assume is that he he the best defense is a good offense. <laughs> he wants to make clear to people inside the country and outside, I am in charge here. Don't question me, and we'll all get along fine. <laughs> We're talking about Saudi Arabia, its relationship with the West. And MBS, and you think you're listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Another new episode is coming soon as we look at science, technology, and their influence on our lives. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. The future is closer than you think. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. Mary Kissel in New York City with our special guest, Karen Elliott House, joining us uh, to talk about Saudi Arabia. And Karen, I want to turn to the south, southern part of Saudi Arabia, the proxy war that is going on right now in Yemen between Iran-backed Houthi militants and the Saudi U.S.-backed forces Another big battle uh, in this years-long civil war slash proxy conflict. Um, it's now moved to a key port city, al Huladaya. Uh, it's about 600,000 people located uh, just north of the choke point entrance to the Red Sea across the water from Eritrea. Um, for outside observers, uh, they might wonder, gosh, why pay attention to Yemen and what is Saudi Arabia's interest in this war? Uh, why is MBS prosecuting the conflict so aggressively? What say you, Karen? I think he, he, he does see Iran as Saudi Arabia's number one enemy. And, I mean, he told me uh, in one of our uh, conversations that, you know, he couldn't ignore the government, couldn't ignore the um, Iranian-backed Houthis moves in Yemen, because if we do, um, the world will say, well, um, as it did in in um, 
Syria, you know, well, Assad has invited the Iranians. We can't do anything about it. So if it's accepted that the Iranians are in Yemen at the um, invitation of uh, Houthis, well, then well, what can we do? And he cannot have Iranian um, interference in Yemen right on their border. Um, so they have no choice, he argues, but to fight. And most Saudis accepted that, I think, in 2015, 16. It's becoming a little less um, accepted, but every time a missile falls, a Iranian Houthi-fired missile falls near uh, the southern border or near Riyadh, uh, you know, Saudis say, well, I guess we have to do this. Um, I mean, indeed, in July, some Saudis were saying, why do you think missiles fall near Riyadh? Our government has the ability to shoot them down. Why don't they, you know, why did they allow this to happen? Because the implication being they want Saudis to understand the threat. Um and missiles falling near Riyadh makes the threat real in a way that it doesn't when they just fall on the Saudi border in, you know, in Nejran and uh, nowhere near uh, a big city like Riyadh. Well, um, I think he, he he fears the Iranians. Well, you know, I'm glad that you raised the missile threat to Riyadh. Um, I, I get a lot of press releases from the Saudi Arabian embassy in the United States and based in Washington. Um, they're really stepping up uh, the public information campaign, if you if you may, uh, uh -huh. on just how serious the threat really is to Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's like Canada shooting a missile into Washington. I mean, I, you know, Americans would be up in arms. Mm -hmm. But 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 Karen, you buried the lead here. Uh, so you've been sitting down with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, what, are, what are your impressions of, of him? I mean, he's a young man. He's, he's uh, aggressive. He's got a lot of aspirations for the country. But, uh, you know, is your impression that he is um, ready for this kind of sustained conflict, mature enough for it? He is the most uh, self-confident Saudi I have ever met. Um, he he speaks. He's not just someone who has memorized the McKinsey presentation on how they can reform the economy. I mean, he he's very um, articulate, self confident, um, and extremely young. And I keep wondering how does a guy, you know, this age and schooled only in Saudi Arabia, though obviously he's traveled a lot. Where does he get these ideas? But I think um, he's very, you know, he's very in, engaging. You would, uh, I've never had dinner with him, but you would love to have dinner with him. <laughs> you know, he talks. I mean, he's, he, um, but he doesn't filibuster, so you can actually... Um, engage in a and and he doesn't seem to shy away from questions um not in my experience but you know if you saw the um the cbs interview that he did on tv before he 
came to the U.S. in March, you know, she asked him, you know, something about his wealth and buying the Da Vinci painting, and he said, I'm not, I'm the son of a king, the grandson of a king. I'm not Nelson Mandela or, <laughs> or uh, Ma, uh, Gandhi. Uh, well, um, um, he did stop by our editorial board uh, oh, during yeah. uh-huh. during that visit. We had a similar impression of him. Um, we, he, to be honest, Karen, he he reminded me of descriptions of his grandfather. Uh-huh, uh, yep. and, and you wrote a wonderful op-ed on our pages, making that same comparison. Uh, you yeah. know, a really charismatic man, but um, also someone who's really quite brutal um, in you know to his enemies. Um, and and the Yemen war, I think, um, you know, highlights that. It's also an important front in the war on terror. You have al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS there. It's been a key focus of the United States' anti-terrorism efforts. So there's more at stake here, I think, too, than than just the the Iranian threat to Saudi interests. I mean, there's a U.S. interest in this war, too. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's a U.S. interest in curbing Iranian uh, encroachment all over the region, and yes. that's the Saudi concern. It's not just... You know, um, the Iranians in Yemen, it's what they consider, uh, and and it's not paranoia, the encirclement uh, from, you know, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Yemen, and in their minds also messing around in in Bahrain when they can. Um, You know, and it's not in the U.S. interest to have the Iranians continue to expand. We don't seem to be doing all that much about it. I mean, I guess we're helping the um, Saudis some with um, intelligence and other things in Yemen, but we don't seem nearly as concerned about Iranian expansion as they are, or as I think we should be. Um, Well, I guess you're always more concerned when they're on your doorstep. That's mm-hmm. unfortunately we are out of time. That's it for Foreign Edition today. Uh, a big thanks to Karen Elliott House for joining the podcast. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal Editorial Board. I'll be back with you on Friday.